Hello and welcome to a specially extended podcast for the November 2009 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and I'm joined by TLO's editor, Dr. David Collingridge, an extended podcast this month. And that's because in the November issue, you're publishing a unique set of cancer management papers. How did this come about? I'm very excited about the publication of these papers because, as you say, they're rather different for us. And it's the first time the journal has commissioned a bespoke series of papers around a unique in-house concept. The origin of these consensus articles can be traced back to the spring of 2008 when the Lancet Oncology was invited to co-host the 2009 Asian Oncology Summit. While we were designing the programme, it became obvious that there was a wonderful opportunity here to formulate a cluster of management guidelines on issues of Asian importance. The challenge with creating these guidelines was how to accommodate the wide range of resource capabilities in Asia so that the papers were universally useful. To address this, we decided to adopt an economic model previously developed by the Breast Health Global Initiative for breast cancer management in low- to middle-income countries. We were also incredibly fortunate that the director of the BHGI, Professor Benjamin Anderson from Seattle, was very supportive of the project and became actively involved when we approached him. At a pre-summit meeting held in Singapore in October 2008, we decided the chairs, regional programme committees and the international advisors of each of the six parallel suites within the programme would decide on a topic for debate in a dedicated workshop on the final day of the summit. We asked these groups of experts to systematically review the literature prior to the summit and devise didactic lectures. At each workshop, attendees were given electronic voting keypads to log responses to questions, and all floor discussions were recorded and transcribed for reference and inclusion as necessary in the resulting manuscripts. After the workshops, the chairs, committee members, international advisors then prepared these comprehensive reviews based on the thorough literature searches done before the summit, the discussions and surveys that took place in the workshops, and any additional literature research undertaken as required after the event. Upon submission, all papers were peer-reviewed according to our usual procedures. All in all, this took about 18 months to come to fruition, so it's been a long-term project. But as a consequence, I believe we have a series of manuscripts that will provide a valuable resource of information to inform practice and provide a foundation for future developments of oncology services throughout Asia. The six papers we're publishing today cover first-line systemic treatment of advanced-stage non-small cell lung cancer, management of liver cancer, management of T-cell and natural killer cell neoplasia, management of the neck after chemoradiotherapy for head and neck cancer, management of endometrial cancer, and finally, management of HER2-positive breast cancer. Thanks very much, David. Well, let's now hear from Professor Benjamin Anderson, who David has just mentioned. Professor Anderson, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Oncology. You're currently Director of the Breast Health Global Initiative, BHGI. Can you tell us about how the BHGI came about and broadly what its objectives are? The Breast Health Global Initiative was jointly founded between the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and Susan G. Komen for the Cure. It is both an alliance of organizations and a group that has focused on the development of guidelines for breast health care in low- and middle-income countries. We started in 2002 recognizing that the guidelines from Europe and the U.S., did not meet the needs for many countries around the world, indeed the majority, because most of those guidelines assume infinite resources. And what we needed to develop were guidelines that were stratified by resource to identify which resources are really the most important and critical to making functional systems so that we can create systems that actually work. 
Thank you for that. And just a little bit more detail about the BHGI. This obviously is based on upon a unique economic framework. Can you just explain a little bit more about that economic framework and how it's been applied in low and middle income settings? What we did was we held three global summits in 2002, 2005, and 2007. And we developed an approach for guideline development that is based on resource stratification, recognizing that some resources are absolutely critical to making a breast health system functional. And so, for example, being able to provide surgery, to be able to make a an adequate and prompt diagnosis and fundamental systemic therapy. These are all essential aspects of breast health care. And we created a four-tier approach, basic resources being what we just said, limited resources being those that would be the next level up, those that would make major improvements in survival based upon existing evidence. The next level after that is the enhanced level resources. These are resources that may not necessarily improve survival, but improve options. So for example, breast conserving therapy, doing lumpectomy with radiation. This doesn't make it women live longer, but it certainly makes the therapy more acceptable. And a key concept is the recognition that the level of maximal level resources. Maximal level resources are those that are often discussed and debated in the high-end resource countries, but may not be appropriate in low- and middle-income countries but they, because they're very expensive and may not necessarily improve survival or outcome in a major way. Basically, what you're saying is it's about appropriate development of, of technology and skills relative to the context of the health system of that particular population. That's exactly right. And also recognizing that each environment is going to have its own solutions for a, a given time. The framework that we've developed based on these four levels crosses in the three areas of early detection, diagnosis, and treatment, because that's in fact how we improve outcome with breast cancer. First, we need to make a diagnosis early. Next, we need to actually prove that it's cancer with accuracy and be able to provide diagnostic tests that are appropriate for determining therapy and then actually providing those therapies. Can you comment on any specific success stories that you've witnessed as a result of the BHGI initiative? The Breast Health Global Initiative guideline development has come to a special point. We published in the journal Cancer in October 2008 a supplement which summarizes the outcome of these three global summits. And we now have a complete framework for implementation. Now we are moving into this implementation phase and shifting our focus from the theoretical to the practical and applied. In the 2005 summit, one of the key areas that we identified was availability of pathology. In Ghana, which is one of the areas in which we've set up work, we learned somewhat to our surprise that while the teaching hospitals were quite sophisticated in many areas of infectious disease, they had inadequate surgical pathology. In other words, they couldn't make a diagnosis of breast cancer in a prompt time period. This was due to understaffing. There was one surgical pathologist for a 1,000-bed hospital, and a pathology report would typically take four to six months. 
collaborators from our group from the Comfa Enoche Teaching Hospital in Kumasi, working together with Dr. Helga Stalsberg, who is a famous senior pathologist from Norway, created a training program. Within only 14 months, together they had established a pathology lab that is up and running today. And Professor Anderson, you were involved in the writing of the consensus papers in this month's November issue of the Lancet Oncology. Can you comment on how the BHGI framework has been adapted by other experts in in other fields of cancer? I'd like to begin by thanking the editor of Lancet Oncology, David Collingridge, because he sought us out and indicated that he wanted to use the Asian Oncology Summit as an opportunity to test this guideline development approach in other cancers. I was tremendously impressed and pleased at how this worked, how the different key opinion leaders that were brought together in the Asian Oncology Summit worked. It was a great learning experience for me, in addition to the fact that it was a demonstration that this stratified guideline approach is, in fact, useful and functional. Did you find any particular differences about areas of your work and recommendations coming out of the uh, Asian consensus? I was very pleased to see that in the most treatable cancers, and the most common cancers that the framework works extremely well. I thought that the article on lung cancer and the article on hepatocellular carcinoma were excellent examples of how this framework can be used. I think that it is for cancers that are more rare and ones that are not typically addressed in the setting of low and middle income that it's more limited because you have to get into the expensive therapies that may not be as applicable. And two final questions about the future. We see next year that the Breast Health Global Initiative is holding a meeting in Chicago. What are going to be the objectives there? This will be the fourth global summit, and it will be held from June 9 through 11. The The purpose of this global summit is to specifically consider how program implementation can take place in the setting of resource limitations. And we're going to focus in three areas. This global summit will be fundamentally different from the first three. The first day is going to focus on the unique needs of the low-income countries, of which many African countries are good examples, and we will be highlighting the work that has taken place in Ghana as well as uh, other parts of the world where the resource limitations are the most extreme. The second day will focus on the middle resource countries and we will be highlighting the work that is taking place in Latin America. In the middle income countries, treatment is often in reasonable shape, but early detection is a big problem. The third day is going to focus on the needs of uh, countries where financial constraints may not be the primary limitation, but human resources are. I'm currently in Saudi Arabia where uh, we have spent some time visiting some of the centers here. The Saudi government has done a wonderful job of creating multiple facilities and with excellent equipment, but the staffing is an issue. Having adequate doctors, nurses in particular, uh, is a major limitation, and also special social needs. 
how to reach out to women that may not have easy access to health care or direct communication routes, how to promote education and outreach in these special settings. And so I think the third day will highlight activities in the Middle East. And finally, Professor Anderson, given the success and the consensus statements coming out of the Asian Forum, do you think there's potential for a truly global initiative built on the same lines as the Asian Forum that could have even broader cancer ambitions? The critical concept of the Breast Health Global Initiative is recognizing that we're all here to learn and that we all have different areas of expertise. I think that the Asian Oncology Summit was a great first step in demonstrating that there are unique challenges within Asian countries and that they have to be considered not just in a generic way, but looking at the special needs. I am very hopeful that this work can and someday contribute to the decreased breast cancer mortality among women around the globe. Well, Professor Anderson, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Oncology. Sir, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for this time. Let's now hear from Dr. Ross Su, who was co-chair of the Lung Cancer Management Suite at the Asia Oncology Summit. He is based at the University of Singapore. Dr. Su, what do you think are the main concerns underpinning lung cancer incidents in the Asia region? Lung cancer is one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in many countries in Asia. In addition, many Asian countries, also in the early period of the smoking epidemic, unlike the Western countries in which it has peaked, uh, unfortunately, in, uh, in many Asian countries, it's just picking up. Therefore, the effects of uh, the long-term smoking hasn't been felt yet. And it's expected that the number of lung cancer deaths in Asian countries will increase. Following on from that, why do you think treatment guidelines are important? The guidelines, especially the ones that were um, suggested by the Asian Oncology Summit, the treatment guidelines will take into account inter-country variation, taking into account the resources, variation in the practice by the medical oncologists within each country. By having the treatment guidelines stratified according to available resources, it can provide a realistic uh, baseline treatment reference for physicians who have access to only a particular level of resource and may also encourage physicians in a resource-poor environment to lobby for reform to upgrade their resources. So what were your initial thoughts when you were asked to formulate this guidelines document, particularly when you consider it was going to be based on an economic model previously used in breast cancer? Well, initially I thought it would have been uh, quite difficult and quite challenging. Fortunately, Professor Anderson and Dr. Colin Rich provided some reading material and after reading through the breast cancer literature uh, using the resource guidelines and also reading around for lung cancer treatment guidelines. I got an understanding of the issues countries with limited resources face and it gave me a, a deeper insight into such problems you know, for physicians in um, countries with uh, limited resources. And what specific aspect of lung cancer management did you decide to look at uh, and why? Lung cancer is the leading cause of deaths worldwide, as I said previously. The vast majority of patients will present with advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer, and the treatment intent will be palliative in that setting. Because there are a wide range of therapies available, 
such as chemotherapy, uh, both IV chemo and oral chemotherapy, targeted agents, the emerging uh, evidence to support the importance of EGFR mutations in determining response. We looked into this area of lung cancer management in the guidelines. Your paper also highlights a number of non-clinical issues which are essential for implementation, such as public health campaigns, patients' assistance programs, education and awareness initiatives, etc. Could you elaborate on these points? Whilst we did focus on the first-line treatment of non-smoke cell lung cancer, ultimately the objective is uh, just palliation. Thus, there's very little impact on improving cure rates in the advanced stage of uh, non-smoke cell lung cancer. I thought that through Lancet Oncology, it would be a good platform to present other issues of lung cancer care with a greater impact in reducing lung cancer mortality and morbidity. Many of the non-clinical issues discussed in the paper had a common theme of education of various different groups with the aim of reducing the burden of, of cancer, not just lung cancer. Thus, uh, issues of education involving the public, policymakers, healthcare professionals, provision of training and collaboration uh, were discussed in the paper. Do you think that the model has worked well and has helped frame or shape the lung cancer treatment guideline into a universal model? Yes, there are many other countries beyond Asia with limited resources. Using the BGHI approach would allow a greater global relevance in countries designated as having maximal resources. Due to financial factors, there may be patients who may have difficulty getting treatment and may end up having a lower resource availability in any case. Indeed, and do you think that there's potential value in extending these guidelines beyond the six areas of cancer being highlighted in the Lancet Oncology this month? Yes, definitely. I'm interested in actually applying this approach in the treatment of cancers such as colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, gastric cancer, and cervical cancer. So what do you think are the next steps then, applying this model as, as you're proposing now? Well, there's so many areas to cover. Well, just focusing on lung cancer, we could go into more detail on the management of lung cancer, addressing areas of cancer detection, prevention, risk reduction, uh, the workup of lung cancer, the diagnosis, treatment, and supportive care. Well, a number of important priorities there. Many thanks, Dr. Sue, for your paper and for your time in talking to The Lancet Oncology. Thank you very much. And finally, let's hear from Dr. Donald Poon. He was co-chair of the gastrointestinal suite at the Asia Oncology Forum, and he is author of the paper concerning liver cancer management. He is also based at the University of Singapore. Dr. Poon, how and why did you choose the topic of the management of liver cancer for the basis of a consensus treatment guideline? The uh, committee first got together and uh, we brainstorm on what would be the uh, suitable topics in such a forum. And uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, of course, naturally came to mind. The simple reason being that out of the uh, 600,000 new cases uh, per year uh, that is uh, diagnosed worldwide, about 80% of them actually come from Asia. And the reason is we have the uh, majority of a hepatitis B carriers and a chronic hepatitis C carriers in Asia itself. These two infections account for the vast majority of all the new cases diagnosed. 
Thank you. And all of the six consensus guidelines that we're publishing in the Lancet Oncology November 2009 issue were based in part on a didactic workshop that uh, ran at the Asia Oncology Summit. What was the structure of your workshop and how was it run? The uh, preliminary work for the workshop actually uh, took place uh, much earlier, uh, a month or two beforehand. We have collaborations with some of our colleagues in the region. We are well aware of who the uh, key opinion leaders are in this field in Asia. And we sent out questionnaires on the pertinent issues within the management of hepatocellular carcinoma or HCC month prior at least. And we had their responses to these questions prior to the uh, workshop itself. The uh, workshop was structured around two didactic lectures which we highlighted the new field of liver transplantation involving live living related donors and also the uh, issue of uh, molecular targets uh, in hepatocellular carcinoma. So with these two uh, lectures uh, prefacing the uh, discussion that ensued, we were able to keep the uh, participants in the workshop up to speed on what is happening in the later developments in this field. And after that, we went through topic by topic, uh, ranging from uh, early uh, management of HCC in terms of primary prevention, all the way to the uh, tertiary state-of-the-art care involving a liver transplantation. And thereby, we had a lively discussion that ensued after each stem. We used that to forge the uh, consensus. And were there any differences in the expectations of the people attending the workshop in terms of management and what an evidence-based approach actually dictates, as is written in your paper? Everybody had a clear idea of what evidence-based practice should be. But the uh, standard clinical practice is uh, pretty much uh, dictated by what resources are available at hand. It is indeed a big challenge uh, when we try to forge a consensus. There's always a a tension between what is evidence-based and what is practically uh, feasible on the ground. Were there larger gaps between what has been done and what should be done than perhaps you had anticipated? Most definitely. And I think what ideal uh, we should achieve is frequently um, something that is uh, far from being realized in standard clinical practice. And we had the opportunity of seeing how big this gap is in relation to the uh, context uh, of each specific country's standard of practice and also social economic status and resources available. As a result of the work you've done, both for the workshop and in preparing for the consensus article, have there been any aspects of disease management that perhaps have surprised you, that you've, you've found out during this process? The rather depressing fact that uh, HCC incidence is set to rise in spite of a highly effective uh, vaccination program against uh, hepatitis B, in those countries who have established it uh, since uh, two decades ago. And uh, this is most surprising to uh, all of us. But after delving deeper into this issue, we realized that the cohort 
who miss this uh, program, they are going well into late adulthood now, which is the peak uh, incidence of uh, HCC, they will carry on for another three to four decades. And I think the incidence of HCC is set to rise exponentially uh, for the next 30 to 40 years. We have uh, a whole lot more time uh, to deal and manage uh, HCC before the uh, advent of the cohort uh, that was uh, vaccinated on a large-scale basis, such that uh, we see a, a drop in the rate of uh, hepatitis B carrier status and therefore eliminating this uh, predisposing uh, factor uh, to HCC. And the model, the BGHI model, which obviously formulated for breast cancer, how well does that work in your area of oncology? What's your actual view of that model? We all thought, uh, all of us in the uh, committee, uh, all thought that the BGHI model is an excellent model. It is uh, simple to use and the uh, four-tiered uh, structure allows for very, very simple yet comprehensive uh, allocation of uh, the uh, various uh, management methods into what we would consider basic and what we would consider something that is nice to have but not necessarily needed to uh, reduce the incidence or to reduce uh, mortality from uh, HCC. Do you think there'll be a need to regularly update these guidelines? We think that these guidelines should be updated at least every three to four years, and it is for two specific objectives. One would be to allow all the various healthcare providers in the different countries in Asia to take stock of how well they are doing and how far we have come in terms of achieving our goals in reducing the mortality from HCC and also to project what further work uh, that needs to be done and whether you know, the strategy adopted uh, has been uh, effective. And are there any other next steps other than updating the guidelines that you think are important in disease management in the uh, Asia region? I think we have uh, intentionally left some of these recommendations to be devoid of uh, semantics. For example... We have uh, intentionally avoided the use of uh, specific dimensions in the uh, radiological diagnosis of HCC, knowing full well that the uh, technology uh, available in the diagnostics would uh, vary from country to country and would definitely change with time. These guidelines can be readily implemented at the grassroots level. Hopefully, that would be a resource stratification blind and the great fact is that uh, Lancet Oncology has chosen <laughs> this forum and this allows us uh, a great opportunity uh, because uh, Lancet Oncology is such a well-respected journal. By publishing our consensus statement, it allows uh, the community at large, big uh, public healthcare officials or the uh, healthcare provider at the primary level or the uh, tertiary centres and this would actually allow us a uh, wider reach in terms of uh, acceptance, in terms of adopting this uh, BGHI uh, system of uh, resource stratification, and also allow everyone to speak on a uh, common uh, platform, and thereby driving unique uh, interventions that would be uh, helpful in the uh, specific uh, setting from country to country. 
Well, that's a terrific way to end our conversation. Dr. Donald Poon, thank you for talking to The Lancet Oncology. Thank you very much. David, clearly a tremendous amount of work has gone into the forum and obviously to, to what you're publishing in the November issue, but the work doesn't stop there. There's already a lot of activity being planned for 2010. Yes, that's right. The intention with the Asian Oncology Summit has always been to offer an annual unique event specifically dedicated to cancer management in Asia, where attendees are able to hear the latest developments from regional opinion leaders and prominent oncologists from around the world that will help inform practice. The 2010 summit is now taking shape, and we have a stellar faculty for next year's event, including a large number of highly distinguished Asian oncologists, along with international opinion leaders. The summit will be held in Bali on April the 9th through the 11th, and will contain parallel programs dedicated to women's health, gastrointestinal cancer, genitourinary cancer, lung cancer and supportive oncology and palliative care. Plus there will be plenary sessions, one of which is a joint initiative between the Lancet Oncology and the Clinical Oncological Society of Australia and lectures on hematological malignancy, neuro-oncology, cancers of the head and neck, connective tissue and skin. We'll also be including proffered papers and poster presentations. More details can be found at the summit website which is www.asianoncologysummit.com. Thanks very much, David. And finally, David, do just indicate some other content highlights from the November issue of TLO. Well, elsewhere in the issue, in addition to the usual selection of news, views and opinion, we've also found room to squeeze in five research articles, including two clinical trials, one on neurocognition in patients with brain metastases treated with radiosurgery or radiosurgery and whole brain irradiation, and a second on fluorouracil versus arena-TCAM plus cisplatin versus S1 in metastatic gastric cancer. We also have a meta-analysis on extended lymphadenectomy versus conventional surgery for rectal cancer, a study looking at validation of the online adjuvant program for breast cancer prognosis, and finally a paper examining the development and validation of a prognostic nonogram for gastrointestinal stromal tumours. So a very busy issue this month, but hopefully something for everyone. Many thanks indeed, David, and a very big thank you to all the contributors to this extended podcast for the November issue of The Lancet Oncology. Thanks very much for listening. More next month.